0: Um, it's good to be back with you here at Faith, uh, it's always a treat to be here with friends. Um, for those who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting or getting to know very well, uh, my name's Davis Morgan, I'm the RUF campus minister down in Hattiesburg at Southern Miss, and um, it's a treat to, to be with you several times this fall semester, um, and to open up the the gospel of Ephesians together and to work alongside Chad and Tim and uh, I think maybe some others who are coming in. I think, uh, I think my brother Clint Wilkie was here not long ago. So um, it's, good, it's good company to be here. So let me invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2 if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 2 as we're continuing this theme of being united to God and to each other through the cross of Christ, as we're continuing to see this community of grace, of peace through grace that God creates in the gospel. Uh, And these first three chapters you may have noticed, and especially chapter 2, these first three chapters, they really are an exercise in turning the diamond of God's grace and really doing what we might call a deep dive into what is it that God is doing in the gospel. And then, almost mathematically, at the middle point of Ephesians, Paul seems to pivot and to juke and to go into talking about what that means in the practical warp and woof of our lives. Uh, and, of course, there's there's cross-pollination of those different themes throughout the book. But in chapter 2, we really are coming to something of the peak of Paul at his most um, enthralled with the beauty of the gospel, um, and Paul at his, his most powerful in terms of, of speaking into our hearts. So chapter 2, this is, if you've grown up in the Presbyterian tradition, if you've grown up in really any Protestant church, Ephesians chapter 2, the first ten verses, is one of those things that you probably could mumble your way through in your sleep without knowing it. Even if you don't think you could, the language of these verses is probably somewhat embedded in, your, in, the, in sort of the memory banks of your mind if you've grown up in a Bible-believing church. So the challenge with that, as always, is how do we hear God's Word aright? How do we hear it fresh? So we need God's help as we do that. Um, so would you just invite God, ask God as we open His Word uh, to to allow you to hear this as if for the first time, so that we might be, whether for the first time or the ten-thousandth time, amazed by grace. So let's read together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to what for many of us is likely a familiar passage, familiar themes, familiar sentences, would you give us fresh eyes? Would you give us soft hearts to understand? For those of us perhaps who have never heard this passage or who have never uh, paid attention to it, Lord, would you open our hearts and unlock our souls through this passage. We pray, Jesus, that you would be exalted before our eyes, that we would see the magnitude of the gospel and why it truly is good news, the best of news for those of us who are dead or were dead in trespasses and sins. Why it's good news for those of us who find ourselves daily entangled in the snares of sin. Lord, would you give us open eyes and open ears and open hearts. Would you penetrate our lives through this gospel message. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come so that we would see Jesus. We pray in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I... uh, I saw a movie maybe two years ago that I won't share the title of, because um, it might get me in trouble, um, and it's one of those biopics about a famous music group, um, and it, it has all the sort of tropes of, you know, the, the, the rise and fall of a rock star, um, how a super group gets formed and does this amazing music and then sort of... Eats itself alive and crashes and burns. And so there's excitement and there's tragedy and there's trauma and drama. And um, one of the themes in this story is this one artist in the group who has this really meteoric rise, who also is the reason why the group can't get along and sort of classic. Diva story, but as you follow this music group across excuse me across about a fifteen twenty year period, as the the group sort of breaks up and goes their separate ways and has different careers, this one artist has an amazing career, but every scene or two starts to cough and slowly gets a little bit more likely to constantly be clearing his throat or sneezing or seeming like he's running a fever. Uh, and he ignores this for several years until at the, towards the end of the movie, he finally, in a recording session, collapses, falls down, breaks a glass table, and has to be rushed to the hospital. Um, and it's a very dramatic scene, and it's tragic when he sits in a hospital bed with a doctor And he he says, Doctor, what do I have? Do I have strep throat? Do I have uh, have pneumonia? What's going on with me? I'm I'm coughing all the time. Just tell me what pills I need to get on to get back out there and to get back on tour and to start recording again. And this doctor, with all the compassion that he can muster, tells this man, I'm sorry, you don't have a cough. You've had HIV for a decade. And that HIV has progressed to end-stage AIDS. And it's this terribly sad moment in this movie. And I'm sorry I'm starting on such a downer right now. But it, it really is where we need to be in this passage. Because the question is begged in that moment that we see in this passage, what if the diagnosis is so much worse than we think? I had a campus minister years ago who anytime he'd complain to him would say, don't worry, it's worse than you think. What if the remedies, as you look at your own heart, as you look at your family, as you look at the people you are in relation with with at work or in your extended family or in your community, what if you look out over society Regardless of whether you would lay the blame, whether you would say the problems are in California or in China or in Washington or in Jackson, wherever you would say the problems are, what if our problem is that our diagnosis has not taken account of the true deadliness of the disease? What if we are falling short Because we think we're dealing with pneumonia and we're actually dealing with something far worse. That's what this passage presses our noses into. And so we're going to look at two things in this passage as as Paul, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, looks out at the individuals in Ephesus to whom he's writing, but also to all of humanity and gives us two things. He gives us a desperate diagnosis a desperate diagnosis, and then secondly, a radical remedy. So that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning, a desperate diagnosis and a radical remedy. A desperate diagnosis. Let's start with that. It's very obvious. It's the beginning. It's really the, the, uh, the majority of our opening passage that you were dead in trespasses and sins, that you weren't sick in trespasses and sins. That as He looks into our homes, as He looks into the inner workings of our hearts, as He looks into our relationships in our workplace, as He looks into the secret place where we stand before God with no one else, He says, you're not sick. You're not just having a bad couple of weeks. He says, we're dead. In other words, there is no easy remedy to this there's no natural remedy because he looks at us and declares us just like i hope this isn't insensitive like this beloved tree out on the front lawn which i hope i'm wrong but i don't think there was ever a miracle growth plant food that was ever made that's going to rescue that live oak and I'm mourning with you. I'm coming from a campus where we had 12 beautiful live oaks destroyed by a tornado that had been there for 80 years. I, I feel your pain. So if that was insensitive, please forgive me. Uh, but, but that's what the Holy Spirit says in this passage, is that our hearts are like a dead tree. We don't just need plant food. There's no way to, to restore a dead person. It might remind you of... Well, we just had our assurance of pardon from Ezekiel 36. It might remind you of what happens just a few verses later in Ezekiel chapter 37 when the angel of the Lord takes uh, Ezekiel out into this valley. And what's the valley filled with? Dry bones. Dry, dry, dry bones that are so decrepit and wasted away that there is no doubt that these bones are dead. And he says, this is the house of Israel. And he asks Ezekiel, son of man, you may remember, what does he ask? Can these bones live? Which, of course, in human terms, we would say, no. And Ezekiel, knowing that he's not with a human, simply says, oh Lord, you know If the answer's not no, then you have to tell me what it is, because I don't see any way it could be anything but no. If you've ever seen the classic movie about the communist takeover of Cambodia, the killing fields, and you've seen graphic depictions of something like what Ezekiel has seen, an entire valley, an entire field of death. And it's as if both from Ezekiel's standpoint and Paul's, two very different biblical writers, it's almost as if we have an engineer and an artist, both depicting the same thing. It's almost as if we have a banker and a poet both rendering the same image through the Holy Spirit's power for us. But God is saying to this to us in this, "If you want to meet with me, this is where we start. This is where we meet." In other words, God is saying to us, I will not meet with you by you saying, "You know, I think I'm going to get religion." You know, I think I want to knock the rust off, see if maybe some spiritual things will help me out. You see, God will not come alongside to be our assistant. We don't meet with God until we come to this place of acknowledging who we are and how deadly the diagnosis is that we're dead in trespasses and sins now the problem in these first three verses as you see it kind of rolled out in verses 2 and 3 is that dead doesn't always look dead does it dead doesn't always look dead we think about the garden of Eden Genesis 3 Adam and Eve are told the day that you eat this forbidden fruit you will surely die and they eat it and then they go on living for several hundred years. What do we make of that? Well, because they may be living physically, but spiritually they did die in the garden because they were separated from God. God tells us all over the place in the Old Testament, think of Jeremiah chapter 2, where he says that his people have forsaken himself, the fountain of living water. God tells us all over the Bible that He is the source of life. He is the the one through whom life comes. He's the one who breathes life into dead places. It's what is encapsulated in the Nicene Creed when we confess our faith together and we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. God is the one through whom life comes, and separation from God means death. Even when the physical element of that separation has not yet uh, corresponded to the spiritual dimension. But, he, but Paul says in our passage, you were dead. Now look at verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses, and says, in which you once walked. He says they were following the course of the world. They were following the prince of the hour, of the power of the air. You see, death doesn't always look like death, does it? Death can look like busy, death can look like really popular, death can look like a really good reputation. Death can look like a lot of money. Death can look like a lot of power. Death can look like a lot of friends, a lot of people who owe you a favor. Death can look like teaching Sunday school and leading mission trips. Death can also look, we might say, like what we might think of as freedom. You see, he's saying that they're, in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air that they were living in the passions of their flesh. It might look like freedom, that we're, we're off on a journey of self-discovery, and we're going to live it up. We're going to do what Elsa says and let it go. And we're going to live our best life. It can look like throwing off restraints. It can look like freedom. But freedom is not simply the lack of restraint. Right? You may have heard this sort of way of depicting it before. Uh, a fish was made to live under certain conditions. And if a fish decides to climb out of the water and try to walk on the land, that's not freedom. It's lack of restraint, but it's not freedom. Right? So w- my generation and the generation after mine, and probably elements of, of all of the last six or seven generations going back about 200 years, has slowly been trying to throw off every sense of restraint and to make personal freedom, individual expression, the thing that we live for, the the highest good. And what we've slowly seen is throwing off restraint is not the same thing as freedom. Throwing off all your restraints in the realm of sexual practices does not lead to individual freedom, it actually leads to slavery and to death. Throwing off all restraints in the element of money does not lead to more freedom. It leads to enslavement and to death and to decomposition. Throwing off all restraints in the element of what you do with your body and what you do with your time and what you do with your talents does not lead to greater freedom. And so Paul is really giving us a radical diagnosis a, a, a an arresting diagnosis that even though it may look alive and it may look free that we may be as dead as a doornail. And so the question for you this morning may be is that you? Have you ever or lately asked the question am i walking dead? That's the desperate diagnosis we see. But we also see a radical remedy in this passage. A radical remedy, verse 4, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which which we once walked. And then Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the most profound two words in the Bible. But God. But God. It's a two-word encapsulation, both of the drama of Scripture and of the Gospel story. That we were dead, that we were enslaved, that we could never be restored. Can these bones live? But God. But God what? Says being rich in mercy. Think about your thought life over the last week. How many times have you thought about how impoverished in immorality and sin you or someone you love is? And think about how much have you thought about the riches of God's mercy. If you were here uh, as we went through chapter 1, you saw the theme fleshed out in chapter 1 of the the lavishness, the... the, uh, the prodigal riches of the Father that He lavishes on us in Christ. You see, our problem is that we don't believe God's as rich in mercy as He says He is. Do we? You see, we think that our sin outweighs His mercy. I would actually invite you to consider whether or not there might be something to repent of in that thinking. To me, as I search my own heart, when I find myself thinking of that, that's actually my pride. That's actually my pride creating that block towards God's mercy in my thinking, that I don't actually believe that God could be as important as my sin. It says He's rich in mercy. We would say down here in Mississippi, He's got mercy coming out of His ears for you. God is more rich in mercy than you are bankrupt in brokenness. God is more wealthy in love than you are in debt in sin. And your debt of sin, your bankruptcy, is nothing compared to the bank account of God's grace. One hymn writer put it this way, Depth of mercy can there be, mercy still reserved for me. God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which He loved us. You see, we don't believe that He loves us the way He says He does. We don't believe that anyone could love us as much as the Father says He does. And so we're brought back, aren't we, to that prodigal son again. Could the Father really restore me? Me in all of my filth. Me who took His blessing and went to a far country and squandered his money, squandered his blessings in wild, reckless living. Me who is here, bowed down in shame and pig slop. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Have you ever or lately been amazed by God's mercy and grace? It says, That out of this great love, God raised us up and made us alive with Christ. That he seated us with Christ. Two things about this little run of of phrases. The first, do you notice what the dominant idea in this little section is? It's that he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us all under one heading. With Jesus. You see, all of this comes as we are united to Christ. I don't know how many of us would be willing to raise our hands and admit that we spent a lot of Saturday watching football. But if you watch college football, if you watch any sort of team sport, you actually get what this idea of union looks like. Because when you are watching a team, are you running down the field? Are you throwing a touchdown? No, but somehow we have decided that you are united to that team. That if they score a touchdown, I score a touchdown. If they hit a home run, I hit a home run. I realize I'm mixing metaphors now. That what happens with them counts to me. That's what our union with Christ means. Is that what happens to him happens to me. That's why Paul doesn't say, it's like I was crucified with Christ in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means that that your sin, right, your yelling at your spouse, your mismanaging of God's blessings that he's called you to steward, your resentment of the authorities that God has placed over you, your greed that you have allowed to go into your heart, your lust that you have not kept in check, your self-centeredness, your materialism, whatever sin, the, the ways that you have written off other people who were made in God's image, the ways that you have judged other people groups, all of the burden of That sin, he says, it has been paid. Not it's like it was on the cross, it was judged on the cross, which is why we can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because the Father says, you know what, we're going to keep this little fiction and we're going to pretend like it didn't happen but because every ounce, every drop, every molecule of judgment has been poured out. There is no condemnation now because the condemnation fell on Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone each to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him The iniquity of us all, which means our sin was judged in Christ, which means when He's made alive, it's not as if we were made alive. We are. Do you get the difference there? It's not kind of like we were resurrected with Jesus. We were. Raised us up with Him and then seated us with Him. Do you know what that means? If we ask the writer to the Hebrews, he's really into the fact that Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand. He talks about it a lot in the epistle to the Hebrews. He says, after he had made purification for sins. After he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Which is a visualization, we might say, of Jesus' own words on the cross. "To telesti" in Greek when he says... It is finished. He sat down, which means that if we are seated with him, not only are we at the right hand of the Father, with as much access to the Father as his own Son, but it means the case is closed. The case is closed. The trial is over, the verdict has been rendered. You don't have to live, excuse me, you don't have to live like the verdict is out. You don't have to live like the verdict is out because the end time, the, the judgment day judgment has been rendered on you. Seated us with him. And I'm looking at the clock and I want to move us toward the close. Let me ask you again, have you ever or lately been amazed by this grace? By this grace that, that doesn't say, we'll give you a blank slate and we'll let you try again, but it says, no, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And when the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. Stealing a quote that I'm just stealing everywhere I preach right now uh, from another pastor who pointed me to. What you may never have heard of the Hawaiian Pigeon translation of the New Testament. Hawaiian Pigeon is a Creole Hawaiian language that is spoken by about half the population of native born Hawaiians of all ethnicities. And if you go on like Biblegateway.com, you can read the Hawaiian Pigeon translation of the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. And the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And you see this beautiful p- picture of the Trinity. is the, the Spirit descends on Christ and the Father speaks from heaven. All three persons of the Trinity represented. And the Father says, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You know what the Hawaiian pigeon translation says? You my boy. My heart is full of aloha for you. I stay good inside because of you. My heart is full of aloha for you. I stay good inside because of you. And we don't have time to flesh out what that does, but you know what it does. When this grace gets inside you, it turns you upside down because God has prepared good works for us to walk in. This gift of God that we receive as a a free gift that we do nothing, none of our efforts measure in. It's not a result of works. No one can boast, Paul says in Galatians, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ by which I have been crucified to the world. And it says we are his workmanship you are his pottery his his trophy of grace kept i mean i don't know how many of you have extremely wealthy friends i don't so i've never actually seen one of these but i've seen them on tv a lot these these locked rooms with the big safe door with you know 3 feet of steel protecting these precious valuables in the basement of some mansion, whether it's wine or paintings or uh, some sort of equipment or some old car, whatever it is. If what we're saying is true, then the Father, in His heart, you are in that trophy case. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared Beforehand, that we should walk in them. For time's sake, I'll simply ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, what have you prepared for me? If everything you're saying about me is true, that even when I was your enemy, even when I was dead in sin, you made me alive with Christ, that the Judgment Day verdict has been rendered, that all of my sin has been nailed to the cross at Golgotha, That that there is not one bullet in the chamber of judgment left for me. If that is true, then it must dominate how I live. And if that is true, the Holy Spirit is at work in me to will and to work His good pleasure. What have you prepared for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we Reflect on your goodness and your grace. Lord, I pray that if I've said anything that is incorrect, that is outside of the lines, that you would scrap it from all memory, that all we would remember is your grace lifted up before our eyes, uh, that Christ would be exalted before us. Jesus, would you draw us to yourself, we pray in your own name.